Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the This Pulp Event Podcast features a panel discussion titled, Weird Editing at the Unique Magazine. California State University Sacramento professor, Tom Craybacker, moderates a panel consisting of popular culture professor Garen Roberts, who was awarded the Muncie in 2013, Morgan Holmes, longtime member of the Robert E. Howard United Press Association, and a book review editor for The Dark Man, Don Harron, editor of the scholarly landmark, The Dark Barbarian, and winner of the 2006 Black Circle Award for Lifetime Achievement in Robert E. Howard Studies, N. Will Murray, pulp historian, N., author of The New Adventures of Doc Savage and Tarzan. Here is Tom. Okay, thank you everybody. Glad to have you here at the panel. What we are going to do is talk about weird tales, but specifically talk about the editorship that gave shape to the magazine. What we'll do, uh, what the panel will do is basically, um, or the way it'll work is this, I'll pretty much stay out of it, I'll ask questions or maybe throw topics out there, but we'll let the panelists uh, interact back and forth in terms of the answers. Uh, to the extent that I do anything, it'll be to see that the mic gets passed and everybody has a chance to uh, speak to it. Uh, to start us off, and then towards the end, uh, we'll have time for questions and answers. Uh, I'd like to start off first by reading a quote. Uh, the quote comes from fantasy and science fiction author Emil Pattaya, who got his career towards the end of the pulp era, was familiar with weird tales and many of the authors and artists such as Clark Ashton Smith and Hannes Bach. And in a brief piece he wrote for the pulp scene Echoes some years ago, he started off his piece on the weird tales with uh, this statement here. He said, the weirdest tale of all is simply that a magazine which was never quite solvent, which was, uh, which was threatened with oblivion many times within the three decades, it nonetheless managed to survive, is now considered the finest, rarest, and most colorful of, of them all, of the pulp magazines of them all. Maybe people don't consider them the finest or the rarest or most colorful, but I think the importance that those adjectives give nonetheless stress the importance that's attached to Weird Tales today. And what I hope this panel can do is talk a bit about the editorial uh, leadership that helped give the magazine this reputation in the years that followed its demise. Uh, I think we'll start off with Will Murray, who is probably the premier expert on pulp magazines and pulp history, and ask Will and then Garen Roberts, who has also uh, spoken about weird tales in the past year, to give us an overview of the magazine and its history in a very general sense, and then we'll go on to talk more specifically about the editorship and their influences. So, Will. You really want me to answer this? <laughs> Um, well, I'm going to let someone else do that, all right, because I'm not, I'm not that clear on all the pop people in the, in the 20s. Um, Edwin Baird was the original editor, correct? Right. Yes. Okay. Was J.C. Henneberger the original business manager, owner? Publisher, Publisher. Yeah. Publisher. Okay, I am a little more clear. Okay. 
I don't remember what triggered Weird Tales as a as a um, as a concept. I mean, obviously there was a, always a, a, a uh, interest in the different story, the unusual story in Argus and all story in those magazines. But I'm going to turn this over to someone else who might remember what was the actual trigger for Weird Tales. I don't think I know it. Uh, there were some slick writers. Uh, one I remember being Ben Hecht, who is a Get this the switch. John Ayrton. No, no. Lift it up. Okay. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. There was uh, apparently some writers, uh, like for Saturday Evening Post, uh, there was uh, two of the three, I don't remember the names, but one was Ben Hecht, who was uh, pretty big in Hollywood, but they were complaining to mention to Hennenberger that they wish there was an outlet for just stories that were just different, off-trail, weird. And Hennenberger ran with it, and interestingly, those three writers, none of them ever produced stories for Weird Tales, but that was kind of the genesis of writers mentioning about the, you know, the wish for a uh, market for things that just wouldn't sell to uh, Saturday Evening Post or Collier's. There was a, a letter published in the Writer Magazine, a Writer's Magazine, in, the, in the 1921 or 22, just about a year before Weird Tales launched, from Henry S. Whitehead complaining about that exact same problem. There are no places you can do ghost stories, fairy stories. He said fairy stories as well as ghost stories and some other stories, horror stories. I don't know if he used horror, but he said there's no general interest magazine that focused on those magazines. Because if you were a writer, you could sell one of them once in a blue moon, because that's all the regular magazines would cover. So I wouldn't be surprised if Henry S. Whitehead's letter, which was in a very prominent writer's magazine, wasn't also an initiator. But I've never seen any link to that. But I came across that on a microphone once. I said, oh, this is interesting. He's talking about there isn't a Weird Tales. I think it was the fall of 22. So we're talking about a year before Weird Tales. Gary, uh, do you want to add to that? Sure. Uh, <laughs> a a number, of, number of points here. Uh, we'll just a couple now and a few later, like uh, Don did last night. Um, there's lots of controversy about Weird Tales, about as much as there is about August Erleth and a few other personalities. And so what you'll probably hear, from me included, so this is the forewarning right now, is some pretty lively opinion. And the history is very, very interesting, it's very, very important, but amongst our discussion here, we probably will lapse into, including from me, some subjectivity, right? Some matters of choice, like I like this story better than this one, and the other one sucks, you know, or or whatever, you know. So the first thing I would would say is that's an important consideration. We've got the actual history that we know about, but then we get the subjectivity from a presentistic viewpoint. A group of guys, 70, 80, 90 years later, looking back based on some good research. I'll be the first to say there's been some really good research done. But there is an element of subjectivity, too. Let me start with that, okay? The three musketeers of Weird Tales, as we know, were Lovecraft, Howard, and Smith. Two of these authors became archetypes. Robert E. Howard was so important in the 20th century in the larger world of fantasy and imaginative fiction that only Tolkien and C.S. Lewis rivaled him for being important. Now, that, that's subjective, right? But there's a lot of people who would agree with me. H.P. Lovecraft was the most important man since Edgar Allan Poe to the field. He was incredible. I love these guys. 
Clark Ashton Smith was great, colorful, kind of electric, eclectic. He wanted to write poetry. He didn't give a damn about the prose, but that's what made him the money. Okay? There are stories of each of these three guys I like, and there are stories of each of these three guys that will say, are you kidding me? You know, seriously. Um, here's a little more subjectivity. Okay? Lovecraft at his best was wonderful. At his worst, he was too verbose. He was wordy. He was derivative in both good and bad ways. Okay? He was a weird man. Um, and he was too consciously trying to be literate with a capital L. Howard was a tremendous man. But some people would say, and I'm not backing away from this myself, that he became too predictable and too conventional. That um, he'd gone about as far as he was going to go until his unfortunate end. Um, and we know what that was all about. Smith was, as I said, a very, very interesting man, a kind of different. The one thing I would say about Weird Tales, and I'll quiet down for a minute, is I always loved, and it was inconsistent, there was good writing, good editing, bad editing, good art, crappy art, including some stuff in the later years and those covers, by the time they went to the digest, it's like, where in the hell did this come from, right? Um, so it was uneven at times, but I am very grateful that some of my personal friends who I knew in those days, I, I would have lived back then, but I knew them at the end of their lives, guys like Bradbury, Robert Block, and by the way, I'm going to be the first one in claim it. In 1917, this, uh, he's born, and so in 2017, our theme needs to be a Robert Block popular culture, a pop pulp fest. So two years from now, Robert Block. Okay. Um, Will, and I'll shut up. Will mentioned uh, Henry S. Whitehead. Wow, you know, an acquired taste. But I love him. He's, he's great. Um, Henry Kuttner, the story of Kuttner's relationship, Block's mentoring, and their relationship, how, how Block introduced Kuttner to Lovecraft via correspondence just before Lovecraft died, is astounding. It's amazing. And Cutner would write for Weird Tales, even though he was an underling of Bradbury, long before Bradbury ever got to Weird Tales pages. And I gotta tell you, I got a bias for this author too. I never got enough of Mary Councilman. Beyond the three Mark Pennies, I loved her stories. Okay, that's enough for me. A little subjectivity, and uh, there we go. Okay, but it's, it's a good introduction because it highlights the authors that gave the magazine its character. and. We're here to talk about the editing in a way which brought those authors and um, developed them in many cases in the magazine. So, Morgan, you've done a lot of work on the history of Weird Tales and its editorship. So, why don't you make a few brief comments about Edwin Baird, and then obviously Farnsworth Wright is the big topic of the night, and then move on to that. Okay, Baird seemed to be, uh, Ehop and Price once said Baird was an ideas guy. He liked to create take the idea, make it reality, and then move on. And you kind of see that the first year. Uh, Weird Tales, if you ever buy those Gerasol replicas, you know, there's not very good fiction in there outside of some Lovecraft stories and uh, also some uh, Clark Ashton Smith poetry. And apparently it was J.C. Henneberger who uh, told Bear, you will take H.P. Lovecraft stories. And, and in fact, uh, uh, Henneberger wanted Lovecraft to be the editor. 
So I think Baird was kind of like you know, just the, the, the guy to bring in, get it started. You know, a year later, uh, they did that three um, issue or that, that triple month uh, issue in the summer of 24 where they cobbled things together. You know, Baird had been gone. And then he moved on to, uh, apparently in 24 when they got, uh, you had Detective Tales, I think College Humor and Weird Tales. And because of the financial problems, uh, Detective Tales, which apparently did make money, was spun off and Baird went over there. And you see a lot of the same writers like Seabury Quinn, Otis Adelbert Klein, people like that. But like in the Baird issue, I think there is a, a, a couple Otis Adelbert Klein at the very beginning in there. So the one or two, but a lot of just one-shot writers and just um, not very good. And then take us to Farnsworth Wright. Well, then Wright was brought in, um, kind of an odd thing, because he was a music uh, crit uh, critique uh, writer for uh, one of the Chicago newspapers. And he was brought in, and um, I, I have a bound set of weird tales from 1928 through 39, and I've been reading him through everything. It gives you a different perspective from reading, you know, anthologies like you know, World of Weird, The Ghoul Keepers, you know, the various wonderful anthologies that have cherry-picked. You start reading everything, and even in the Farnsworth Wright years, you get a very di uh, different perspective. I think he was an editor very comfortable with middling-type writing like by Seabury Quinn, Otis Adelbert Klein. I think when you started getting things by like Lovecraft, anything that was uh, on the frontier of fiction, he got very uncomfortable with. And he seemed to second guess himself and often would reject stories, worried about it with the reader reaction. And I think, I have a personal theory, I think there, there was a per, uh, certain percentage shift that was maybe blue collar buyers and then also certain women uh, purchasers of the magazine. Uh, but you start looking at the list of stories that Wright rejected. You know, you have, uh, he had a problem with H.P. Lovecraft, and pretty much uh, 1924, The Shunned House, 1926, Call of Cthulhu, 1930, At the Mountains of Madness, 1933, Shadows Over Innsmouth, in 1925, he rejected Clark Ashton Smith's Abominations of Yondo, thereby delaying Clark Ashton Smith's entry as a fiction writer for five years. Uh, we have two lost Robert E. Howard stories from 1927. Uh, one is called Valley of the Golden Web, and another is called Sanctuary of the Sun. They have kind of A. Merritt-esque sounding titles. Uh, Manly Wade Wellman claimed, claimed that he was writing Cardios of Atlantis, and those were rejected. Henry Cutner wrote two sword and sorcery stories about King Alfred. Those were, were rejected. Uh, Jack Williamson, in his autobiography, had a list of eight stories. Tarantula was the name of one, where he's doing some out-and-out -out horror. Uh, Donald Wandry's The Red Brain was initially rejected, uh, but that in you know, Lovecraft came to bat and got that bought. Uh, Fritz Leiber's Adept's Gambit, the first Fawford and the Green Mouser story, was rejected in the late 36. You also had uh, Leiber sent all his Fawford and the Green Mouser stories, The Weird Tales, first. So that means Two Sod Adventure was rejected in uh, 1939. You know, and I have a very hard time believing that any, some of the, any of these that were like these two Howard stories that are now lost were worse than some of the stuff. You know, the story I like to point out is just classic crap weird tales. Especially the science fiction was bad. Will McMahon had a story called The Time Will Come and it's set in the future. Uh, America's been conquered by the Chinese. When a man comes of age, they're taken to the harems for Chinese women back in China. Meanwhile, the women have become aviators, kind of like Amelia Earhart. And this is the kicker. They're flying cybernetic chickens, giant chicken, part machine, part chicken. I mean, you read this and you go, WTF? 
I mean, this story is so bad, it needs to be reprinted. Uh, it's like watching Gilligan's Island, you know, it's just so bad, it's good. Don, uh, why don't you uh, pick up with a little more detail about uh, Wright and Lovecraft in particular? Uh, okay. The related uh, articles. Well, one word needs to be said, and everything has been said so far. Chicago. <laughs> Chicago. Farnsworth Wright lived in Chicago. Otis Adelbert Klein lived in Chicago. Henneberger had his publication in Chicago, and he wanted Lovecraft to edit the magazine, and Lovecraft just could not talk himself into moving to Chicago. Not, nothing against Chicago. He, he couldn't separate himself from New England, blah, blah, blah. And I think if, if Lovecraft had taken the job, uh, it might not have been that great a thing. Who knows, the magazine could have foundered you know, almost instantly. But for him, it would have taken away from us Lovecraft's fiction. And I think, you can disagree or not, I personally agree, without Lovecraft's fiction and Robert E. Howard and some of the other stuff, but now obviously on the 125th anniversary here, without Lovecraft's fiction, who on earth would really be interested in weird tales? I mean, uh, I was thinking uh, in terms of this panel and some of the revisionist anti-Farnsworth Wright uh, stuff that's come up. If this were, what, 30, 40 years ago, the same sort of thing, PulpCon or whatever was going on, and you'd have like, Bob Weinberg would be up here. He's done books on weird tales. He thinks Farnsworth Wright is great. And at that time, it seemed you, you would just look at the magazine. It lasted all, all these years, had some like the great art, had some of the great stories, uh, certain great figures. I mean, it had the first, what you could call really professional uh, print from Lovecraft. Uh, Farnsworth Wright printed the first Robert E. Howard stories. Uh, Bradbury later. Uh, I mean, you've got highlights, these highlights. You've got all this junk, too, <laughs> filling in the rest of it. Uh, but why, why wouldn't you think it's one of the greatest magazines of all time? Because it just seemed like it was great. And then, you know, over all these recent years, collections of letters have come out, Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith even now, and you just think, my God, look at all the stuff Farnsworth Wright was rejecting. And uh, like the, the Call of Cthulhu, I think I did this one last night on the Mythos panel. He rejected the Call of Cthulhu, submitted in 1926. And that was when Lovecraft was really trying to go for it as a pulp writer. He'd been in New York, he'd been married. Uh, he obviously moved to New York with the intention of becoming something of a writer because on his honeymoon, he ghost wrote, or co-wrote, uh, Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, with Houdini. They selected Houdini, uh, or Houdini helped select Lovecraft to be his ghost, his co-writer, for what would have been a series of stories. So, among the what-ifs, what if Houdini hadn't died? What if Lovecraft was writing a new Houdini tale every year, twice a year, or Houdini magazine, <laughs> you, you can't tell. But the point is, Lovecraft was willing to ghostwrite for Houdini. So he was, he, was, he was on board. Then he gets the divorce, or doesn't get the divorce, but he moves back to Providence. And uh, he sits down, he's, he's in this creative you know, inspiration. He writes Call of Cthulhu, sends it in, all reasonable expectations, right, will accept it, he bounces it. And then as I said, 
A couple of years later, this 18-year-old Donald Wander, I hitchhike to visit Lovecraft, reads it, going back to Chicago, going back to St. Paul after a few weeks, tricks right into accepting it. He said, wow, I read this story by Lovecraft. This story's great. And so right, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I could use that. And he picks it up. And then after that, it's like off and on, off and on with Lovecraft. He'll, he'll uh, you know, occasionally buy something like Whisper in Darkness. He bought that really fast. Some other stuff, he'll reject it. Somebody like Duralith will write in and talk him into doing it. So there's like no role going for Lovecraft. He just can't get it going. Uh, Robert E. Howard, uh, and Morgan can do this or, you know, at some point. Robert E. Howard was kind of hesitant first. Uh, Wright brought, bought his first couple of stories, you know, I think three stories in around 26, then Wolf's Head and then The Voice of Villafear. And then, as Howard says in a famous letter, it was three solid years after that, he was a teenager, before he sold another line. And uh, uh, to, to end my little thing here with uh, Weinberg again, and I like Bob, by the way, uh, don't get me wrong if that ever uh, comes across, but he was talking in his Weird Tales storybook how one of the, the interesting things Farnsworth Wright was he bought first stories by all these writers, more first stories by first-time writers than any other pulp editor. It's like, okay, one story by all these people no one's ever heard of again versus all the rejected Lovecraft. I mean, who, who wants to place the bet on that now? Uh, though I have had the thought, okay, so what if one of these people, you know, he sold them the first story. What if they sent him a second story and a third one and a fourth one and he rejected them all? We'll never know. Worth mentioning just the fact, as Don said, 40 years ago, uh, Wright was seen as a great editor in many ways, a giant. But one of the things that's led to a revision has been the publication or availability of the letters of so many of the writers who have, or who had sold to Farnsworth Wright, the Lovecraft letters, the Howard Levitt letters, Clark Ash and Smith letters have recently been published. And that's given us a new insight uh, to the complexity of the relationship, to be sure, of Will. Uh, to be fair to write, and I don't want to be too fair to write because a lot of the criticism here is very justified, is he wasn't the only one to reject Call of Cthulhu. Robert Simpson of Argosy rejected it, and you would think that a magazine like Argosy published every week, needing to fill pages, you could have put Call of Cthulhu in an issue and not harm circulation. You could take a chance, but whatever. And, and Simpson wrote some horror himself. He was also a fiction writer. And so, you know, um, the, the thing about rejections, and I, I've read a lot of correspondence of writers, sometimes perfectly good stories are rejected for strange reasons. Strange reason one, I remember a Lester Dent story rejected by Fiction House. Editor said to Lester Dent in a letter, I almost bought this, but another story that better than yours on the, set in the same locality, Oklahoma oil fields, came in and I bought that instead. Okay. So that was a near, nothing wrong with the story. It, it was an in until it was pushed out. Uh, Howard Wander, I wrote a story for Black Mass, The Last Pin, uh, it, which hung on the concept of uh, a character putting safety pins through his skin, like people, punks do in, you know, in recent or, decades. Or Albert Fish in that day. Yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, the editor wanted to buy the story. Um, uh, what was her name, Ellsworth. 
uh, I forget her first name at the moment. She wanted to buy the story, but she wasn't sure you, if someone could walk around with safety pins through their, their, their calves without infection. So we, she talked to a medical expert who said, no, that person would be infected. Well, we know now you can do that, and you can get infected, but if you do certain things, you don't. Very good story, rejected because of a medical opinion that turned out to be not true. Um, the problem with an editor like Farnsworth Wright is the magazine was always hanging by a thread. He had a publisher above him, probably had veto power over any story, accepted or rejected. And you normally the editor is not the only reader. You might have a reader below, a reader above in terms of the publisher. You might have the business manager or the accountant read a story to get a, a man on the street feel. So, you know, if you make a mistake with a magazine that's on an edge like Weird Tales, the magazine could go out of business. Serials have killed magazines that were perfectly viable when serials were viable and when the Depression came along. Serials weren't viable. Serials had to stop or they killed the magazine. I think serials killed the Mun Munsey House. They didn't stop doing serials because that was their format. In the Depression, people couldn't afford to buy detective fiction weekly Argosy every month. So the point is, Things are rejected for reasons that we don't always understand. The reasons are good, the reasons are bad, the reasons are strange. So, you know, I, I fault him for rejecting those stories, I fault him for not encouraging Lovecraft, but every time he bought a story, he had to pay money and justify that, that payment, and he put the magazine at risk of circulation going up or down. Gary. This is great stuff. I, I, I enjoy all of it. Uh, a couple of anecdotes from what I found this summer just in looking for things on Kuttner and other things. Um, there's a wonderful quote by Jack Williamson and, and Morgan. I, I love your list. It's fascinating. Um, but, and, and Jack Williamson was one of the guys who was rejected apparently multiple times. But there's a wonderful quote. Apparently Jack Williamson loved Farnsworth Wright. He even comes out and says he's the best editor that ever was. Now, I wouldn't go that far. I wasn't working for him. I didn't live then. Uh, it's really arrogant to me to think one way or another about him. Uh, but I thought that's fascinating. I read a story a few weeks ago in finishing up an intro for, for Steve Hafner's second early uh, stories of Kuttner. And Kuttner writes this beautiful story and I'm reading it along and the editor and it looks pretty darn clear to me it's Farnsworth Wright and the story rejects his story. So Kuttner in this really creative, wondrous, wonderful science fiction situation absolutely eviscerates and kills him and sends his body to the dark world and all. It's a, I wrecked the story, it's a better story than I, than I told you. Um, so it's, there's a lot of different angles and then I guess I would wonder one other thing. Is an author ever really guaranteed, given the nature of the publishing game and writing, is the author ever guaranteed, no matter how great they are? Poe didn't get guaranteed publication in any one volume. Um, I don't know, just questions. And I love the, the Williamson anecdote, and I, I kind of charge out of the Kuttner story I read this summer. It, it was fun. Yeah. Let me look at it from a production point of view. You have a 128-page magazine published every month. You may or may not have a lead novelette. You have certain lengths you want it to do, and the lengths have to be fixed which means so many st long stories, so many short stories, so many short shorts. Uh, Smith and some of the others would talk about some of their sales were just filler stories, something that's five, 3,000 words that would, you know, we think are good stories, but that was just something to fill the back of the book, okay? You gotta fill 128 pages a month. That's 10 manuscripts, sometimes 12, sometimes eight. 
depending on what flexibility you have. Your submissions can be stacks and stacks, and you have somebody's got to weed them out, and somebody's got to read the good ones or the promising ones. Obviously, known authors go to the top of the stack, but you don't want to miss out on someone new that's good. So your, your search is a constant pressure-filled uh, quest for known writer that you can put on a cover, stories that don't bump into each other, you can't have an issue full of werewolf stories unless you do a werewolf issue. So you've got to have a werewolf story and or a vampire story. Maybe you don't have two in the same issue. Maybe you, your, your policy is not to have both, both types in one issue. You do some science fiction, you do some ghost stories, you do the tried and true, Seabury Quinn. You do stuff that's tame, but is also um, predictable. Nobody's going to complain about a good ghost story. Okay? then you're not paying very much, which means you're not getting the best writers. You may be getting their best stories, but they're not always the best writers, and you've got to pay them. Okay? So you've got budget constraints. So you're assembling an issue every month out of all these constraints and limitations. It's not that easy. It looks easy when we look at the finished magazine and say, why did you buy that Seabury Quinn story and reject Call of Cthulhu? But in terms of the day-to-day -day grind, you're constantly trying to make decisions, and, and with a very limited staff. This was not Street and Smith. A bigger staff, you'd have readers, people who were seasoned, and people who weren't seasoned, who could represent different aspects of the audience, and who would basically help with the decision making. At, 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 at uh, the Leo Margulies uh, enterprise, Ned Pine's Thrilling Pulps, they had a nice situation we talked about the other night. Margulies was the editor-in-chief, editorial director. He had readers under him. Every reader read the same stories. They all gave an opinion. There was a consensus, and Margulies made the final decision. Farnsworth Wright didn't have that luxury. He had to do it all. It's not easy. You know? It's, it's, you're dealing with a sea of manuscripts and the constant pressure to, to buy, buy on budget, and then make up an issue that has enough variety and enough predictability that you appeal to all the audience. And the, then there's the letters coming in. I hated that story. I uh, love that story. I love that writer, but I hated his story. Yeah. I hated that story, but I love this. Uh, I love that story, but I hated the ending. That's hard. That's not easy. But uh, what you uh, lead into is one aspect of Farnsworth Wright's business management, which is his irregularity and pain as authors. Yeah. Robert E. Howard is probably the most famous case, and one can't help but think that that kind of a problem, maybe paid Seabury Quinn every time, but uh, that kind of a payment schedule tended to be very discouraging and maybe turned authors away who could have produced good material for them. And I'm not sure I blame Farnsworth White right for buying Seabury Quinn every month. I think I would blame the readers of Weird Tales at that time saying, give us more Seabury Quinn. And maybe they didn't like Seabury Quinn as a writer. Maybe they liked Jules de Grandin. Maybe they liked that continuity of character and would forgive the repetitiousness and the other things because they liked the continuity of the character. Mm -hmm. Mor Morgan's Mor been reading every page of all these Weird Tales for years. Mm -hmm. What did they say in the letters column about Lovecraft? Oh, it's like every month, you know, you get around 1929, 30, 31, every issue in the Erie, the, the letters column, people are saying, when's the next Lovecraft story? When's the next Lovecraft story? So it's a case of, you know, the, the readership telling Wright what, what they want, and then he's rejected Lovecraft. 
And the thing is that even if he had bought everything by Lovecraft, it's not like Lovecraft would have been writing eight stories per year. He probably would have produced two stories per year. But there was that period from around 30 to 35, there was about no Lovecraft stories because he was just so turned yeah. off. Correct. A slight correction or addition. There were no new Lovecraft stories. They were publishing in Weird Tales <clears throat> reprint Lovecraft stories like The Outsider, Picture in the House or something uh, that had run previously in Weird Tales. They paid a penny a word and that's their top word rate or penny and a half. But they didn't have to pay Lovecraft for the reprints. So the readers at that time, if they didn't know any better, think, wow, here's new stories about this guy Lovecraft. This is great. When are we getting more new stories? And nothing happens for, honestly, almost five years until finally near, near the end of Lovecraft's life, I think, Thing on the Doorstep, the last one, The Haunter of the Dark. And then it looks like, you know, Farnsworth Wright finally is ready to go and start buying Lovecraft. Lovecraft dies. Okay. And then for every issue for over a year. It was about two years, actually. Two years? Up till 39. Yeah. There's a new story or poem by the dead Lovecraft now dead Lovecraft, in every single issue. Yeah, Wright, Wright had an epiphany the moment Lovecraft died and he found out about it that Lovecraft was, you know, turned out was a great writer for Weird Tales. <laughs> you know, my view is you know, 2020 hindsight. You know, the thing is, is, is if you take the Lovecraft circle out of Weird Tales, what do you have? You know, and the thing is, Wright was just capricious and he had a way of turning writers off. Like Lovecraft, you know, Carcash uh, and Smith made fun of him. Like Novelin Price in her book One Who Locked Alone about Robert E. Howard said, uh, you know, the thing that, that seems to upset him is that Weird Tales still owes him about $1,000 and doesn't pay. He sometimes calls Wright a two-bit editor, a man who can't recognize anything good. And he actually asked Otis Adelbert Klein in 1935, uh, dated May 13th, who was his uh, agent. agent. He said, what's his game anyways? Weird Tales still a legitimate publication or has it become a racket? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it just Wright had a way of turning writers off. Uh, Frank Belknap Long and Donald Wandry, as soon as Street and Smith got astounding stories up and running, they jumped ship and used Weird Tales as a salvage market. And you know, uh, F. Orland Tremaine, the editor of Astounding Stories, had no problem with the uh, at the Mountains of Madness due to space concerns or Shadow Out of Time. He was quite willing to take all that. And you know, so you had a, uh, he was willing to poach writers some weird tales. It was, uh, it was kind of, uh, I loved it. It was one of my favorite features in the Pulpster a few years ago when George Vandenberg with the uh, help of Durla's daughter, April's, he's been here, a nice man, a former husband, showed how badly astounding destroyed at the Mountains of Madness and how upset mm. Lovecraft was about that whole situation. So that's all. This is all very interesting to me. Why would Wright publish these all these pro Lovecraft letters if he wasn't listening to them? Mm -hmm. that, I, I don't get that part. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, one of the ones that astounded me in recent mm -hmm. times was why was the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which was available ten years before Lovecraft died, why was it published ten years after he died? That, that one's kind of, I don't have the whole story on why that happened. Because that's, that's an omission to me. Yeah, well, so, some of this stuff, uh, even if you have the most pos negative possible uh, view of Wright, you can't blame him for everything, because you can certainly blame Lovecraft a lot, because Lovecraft didn't have the drive, didn't have certain characteristics needed. For example, Wright uh, 
and this has been in interviews and like Weird Tales 50 and whatever from Weinberg. A lot of the writers, I think Robert Bar Barbara Johnson was one, Durleth was one, there's others. It's like uh, Wright rejects a story, a little while later they send it again. A little while later they send it again. And uh, Durleth says some of his stories he submitted 15 to 20 times wow. before they finally, he finally had a hold of the magazine. He'd forgotten he rejected it 15 times already. Yeah, whatever. He, he picked it up. And, and Lovecraft just wasn't like that. It was rejected. It was kind of, oh, no, like, what do I do now? He just didn't have the drive. Uh, Charles Dexter Ward, he wouldn't type it. He hated typing. Yeah, so a lot of the lag in there is that he wouldn't make a copy and finally, you know, like protégés uh, like Barlow or Wandry or somebody typed up, or Durleth, you know, they, they would type up some of the stuff that he just didn't want to type up. You can't bl blame Wright for that. Donald Wandry wrote a short novel in the early 30s, Dead Titans Waken, which was later revised as The Web of Easter Island. I think what it was, he just never submitted the weird tales because he's just going to write, just going to reject it anyway, so he didn't bother. Not possible. Let, yeah. Yeah, let, me Sorry. let me jump in here, and I'm doing it because of time. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes, and why don't we open that up to questions? Uh, the discussion will continue, but maybe in uh, terms of some of the things people would like to ask about. So are there any questions? There's one. Real briefly, um, did that, does everybody know that uh, the two um, pyramid books that Marley brought out, uh, Weird Worlds of Weird and Weird Tales, those are ghost edited by Sam Lasseter. Yeah, yes. I, I knew yeah. that, yeah. That's, that's important we note that. Mm -hmm. What about talking for a second about C.M. Eddy and the Loving Dead, the story that might have saved Weird Tales uh, at, at the end of the first year? Anybody familiar with that anecdote? Yeah. You want to do it? No, no, go ahead, please. Uh, Morgan, go ahead. Oh, you want to do it, Morgan? Go ahead. Well, it, it, uh, it's a rewritten story by Lovecraft. And that's the other interesting thing is Wright was buying all these stories rewritten by Lovecraft. And when you had the Cthulhu mythos coming in, where other writers were writing like what I call Lovecraft light, Wright was buying it up. But he just wasn't buying the source material. Uh, but The Love Dead was a rewrite. And supposedly, yeah, I don't know how much truth, maybe it's an urban legend, but it kind of caused an uproar. And you know it's a classic case of uh, you know outfit uh, municipalities try and uh, ban it, and then the notoriety goes up, yeah. and it sells a bunch of issues. Yeah. By the way, it's about necrophilia. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, right. I mean, that's kind of an important detail if you don't know it. Oh, I, I should also mention in terms of the Lovecraft not appearing with new stories, ghost-written stories by Lovecraft, not under his name, would appear in Weird Tales. So, <laughs> so, yeah. and 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 part of it was. Lovecraft, obviously, if you read enough of his letters, you can say, oh, he's an art guy. He only wants to do this. He only wants to do that. He obviously loves it when he can sneak in, crack the magazine with another sale, even under the name of Hazel, you know, Zelia Bishop or Hazel Eld or somebody. That was a, yeah, a thing. Yeah, question there. Yeah. What year did she take over? 39, 40, 40 actually. 39, 40, 40, yeah. Yeah, I, I personally think she's fine, but, uh, uh, and, and like, it's kind of con uh, commonly held knowledge 
yeah, the magazine wasn't as good, but she didn't publish anything quite as bad as some of the stuff Farnsworth Wright used. But, but the thing is, she didn't have the Lovecraft circle anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they had like the, the dregs or the remnants. They had Block and Kuttner and a few others for a while. But when, when Wright was going, he had you know, Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, and the satellites. And that, that's like a, an, a person I compare Wright to frequently unfavorably. Joseph T. Shaw at Black Mass Magazine. Joseph T. Shaw came in, he had Dashiell Hammett except Dashiell Hammett had stopped writing for the magazine because the previous editors had frozen, frozen him in 1925 at three cents a word. So if you look at his publications in 1926, there's two or three stories in the January, February, March issues of Black Mask. There is nothing for the rest of the year. Shaw takes over the magazines, reads everything, realizes Hammett is the best writer they've got going. Someone in the audience asked me to mention Hammett, by the way. That's why I'm doing this. <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, so Shaw uh, writes him and says, come back, come back. If you come back, I'll give you five cents a word. And the short stories are good, but I want something longer. Uh, you know, like, I'm not going to publish novels, but I have nothing that's like four or five interconnected novelettes. And so Shaw lured him back, paid him five cents a word, and Hammett wrote the novels, which he's famous for, including the Maltese Falcon. And uh, in that same kind of scenario, Wright is just rejecting Lovecraft. Who knows what he could have done? Over here. I don't want to speak if anybody else wants to talk, but just for a second, you know, John W. Campbell developed his writers. He would recommend if you make these changes or write in this way, please submit it to me. Now, did anything like that go between the editors and the writers? That's important because you're talking about editing. The only case I have ever found, and it's something I have an interest in, and that is Robert E. Howard's Phoenix on the Sword. Wright sent that back and said, make these changes. That's the only thing I can find out of all of it. You just seem to be, he had uh, rejected and just say not convincing. And, and <laughs> yeah, something, something yeah. really vague. But uh, the, the other trick, and again, more than one uh, Weird Tales veteran has mentioned in memoirs or interviews, what you'd do is you'd hold the story for a while, you'd retype the first couple of pages so they looked fresh, and you'd send it back to Wright and said, yeah, here it is, I made all the changes you suggested, and he'd buy it. <laughs> then, who knows how often, but yeah, that, that was one of the tricks. So he wasn't a, Campbell was a real editor, Shaw was a real editor, right, you know, accepted stuff, we or, should, or rejected it. We should, sorry, we should mention that when uh, uh, William Clayton launched Strange Tales in 1931, uh, Smith, Whitehead, Robert E. Howard, Cracked that magazine for higher yeah. rates. Yeah. Were right high for the year or two years it was being published, but Lovecraft couldn't get arrested in the pages of Strange Tales either. So Lovecraft, it wasn't just right. You know, Harry Bates at, at uh, uh, Strange Tales didn't seem to find anything in Lovecraft he liked. And years later, John W. Campbell, when he started Unknown, said, you know, Lovecraft wasn't a good writer. I would never have published him. So. Wow. So. There, there's more to this in the sense that Lovecraft was so unique or visionary or different or or or, or, or whatever, you know, his faults and his weaknesses are very, very glaring. Um, he had a problem getting published regardless, you know, and it's not just right, but right. You know, we can certainly bash right justifiably for not accepting certain things in a timely fashion, and definitely it's not right's fault that people didn't get paid on time, that's the publisher. Got a question here. 
Well, they were what some. Was, was he advertising in some writer's digest, or was Farnsworth yeah. right? It wasn't right. It was word of mouth, I think, uh, between you know, like someone who knew that Lovecraft did this, and, and, and they would contact him. But no, Wright wasn't sending him, oh, yeah, go over, have Lovecraft rewrite the story, and I'll buy it from you under, under your name. It, it, it wasn't like that. But, yeah. But there's no documentation on this fact. Yeah. Okay, uh, we got the word, we got just a couple more minutes, so one more question. Uh, anything from this side of the room, classroom, it's been very There's quiet. One right there. Okay, I guess um, it's your job. Do you think it's, it's possible that editors might not simply have found Lovecraft as commercial? Yeah. Uh, because he, he was very literary, mm -hmm. his vocabulary was large, his style was somewhat complex in comparison to most pulp writers, and might it have been just a case of our readers aren't bright enough you mm -hmm. know, to get this whole thing? Frank A. Munzee, the famous, infamous publisher, once said a, a thing that pulp editors always quote and remembered. I'm putting out, don't never forget, he told his editors, we're putting out a magazine for the great American moron. Okay? <laughs> they assumed, this is true in the 30s, I've, and, and I've seen pulp writers complain about it, Pulp writers, meaning their audiences, would find that they would be airline pilots or doctors or lawyers or politicians or whatever. But the editors, the publishers were saying, pulp edit for, buy and edit for the average low intellect American. Basically, someone who, who came out of grade school, didn't go to college, and that was the assumption. They did, they underestimated the intellect of their audience, and sometimes the audience proved them right, and sometimes it proved them wrong. But yeah, the, the Lovecraft was a notch above what, a couple of them, many notches above what a pulp story would normally be. And that was the problem. Yeah, people responded to him too. Oh, you know, I've, got, I've got a piece of information I wanted to throw out uh, very briefly because I think you guys will like it. This is uh, John Hayfley, if you remember him from the Mythos panel last night. This is the first edition of his book, The Hardcover. You'll probably never see a copy again. It's incredibly rare. But between that edition and the paperback that was on sale today, uh, he, he left out a few things. 
And one of them was this great quote from Derleth to Ra Hoffman. I don't know if you guys know Ra Hoffman. He was a member of uh, LOSFIS in uh, the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. He was one of the last three major guys still living. It was Ray Bradbury, Ray Harryhausen, and Ra Hoffman. And Ray Harryhausen's the only one of those guys left. At any rate, Derleth is writing to Hoffman April 11th, 1944. Just a casual letter, I'll just read this part. Sorry you missed the March issue. That novel of mine, I think, was one of my best. And Ra, I was, uh, he died, he was about a year ago, about 93 years old. And he was telling me once what they did, particularly the savvier Los Angeles fans, they didn't buy every issue. He didn't have it because he didn't buy it. They'd wait because about every six months or so, Weird Tales would offer you a subscription at a discount rate, and you could start the subscription with any issue in the past, so they would not get, in, get issues for a few months until a subscription lapsed. Then go back to when they stopped and subscribe and go that, that far forward. I don't know if that's common knowledge or not. Raw told me, and I thought this would be a good place to pass it on. And I think uh, I'm getting a signal from Mike. This is a good place to stop. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.